Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We haven't recorded in a while, so this is fun. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. We still remembered how to do this. Sort of. Amit, yeah. you have a lovely shirt on. What does it say? Thank you. It's a ugly Christmas sweater. I think it says bite me. Exactly uh, I'm doing some, yeah, some Christmas stuff tonight. So I got that in my Ukraine hat. It's a good combo. I'm wearing my Michigan hoodie because Michigan slayed the evil empire of Ohio State again this year and won the Big Ten. So to Amit and Amit alone, this is maybe the uh, one time ever that uh, Michigan gets to be in the playoff over Alabama. Yeah, though I do think Alabama has a good chance of finishing as a higher seed than Michigan. Because what likely is going to happen is Georgia's going to just run through the playoffs and it won't be close. And Alabama's going to win its bowl match at the Sugar Bowl. And we'll end up being Georgia, Alabama will be one, too. Right. But I think Alabama lost two games this year. I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, I'm just saying it when you if you lose to Georgia by like 50. Well, you got to get there first. Busy, <laughs> busy losing at Rocky Top. Anyway. All right. That was fun for Ahmed and I and nobody else. Anyway, yeah, today we're actually, <laughs> believe it or not, we're actually not talking about sports today. Today, we wanted to talk about some new laws that have come to pass this year and some things that may have been on the radar for a while, but are now coming into effect in the next year, but that were passed a little sooner. So Ahmed, do you want to kick it off? Definitely. So the first law we want to talk about in the context of the new year are the amendments to the One Day Rest in Seven Act. So what this law ends up doing in a short version is it expands the number of rest and meal periods. So currently, the, the main purpose behind the law is just to ensure people get enough time off over the course of a week and enough meal periods. The current law requires 24 hours of rest every calendar week, but it's defined within calendar week. So there is a way for employers to kind of create a loophole within the system by having employees work 12 days but spreading it out over two weeks with Sunday being off, working Monday through Saturday, Sunday being off, or working then Sunday through Friday. So what the new law does, it, it just removes the reference to calendar week, and it's just a 24-hour requirement in any seven-day period. It's a very simple fix. So it's sort of like the FLSA where work weeks can be categorized really over any seven-day period. Exactly. It's just whatever. I mean, you can't have a shift in goalposts, but the company or employer says, hey, our weeks are Wednesday to Tuesday. That's permitted. So what you're saying is under this new version of the law, that is also now the case. Exactly. Yeah. It just I, I think the simple change it made was it just no longer referred to them as calendar weeks. So it's just every seven day period. And so as long as you have a 24 a hour rest period within every seven day period, companies are now compliant with the law. And the second component then of this change is meal period. So the current law requires a 20 minute break for every seven and a half hour shift to start no later than five hours after the start of that shift. And what the meal period amendment does is it adds a requirement that employees get a second meal break for every additional four and a half hours they work after the four, first 7.5 hours. So that's just if someone has a 12 hour shift, they get a second meal break. So what are the consequences to violating this law? Are there private causes of action? 
that's the issue is that the current law has pretty little enforcement bite. The new law, the way I understand it, the amendments are going to provide the IDOL or the Department of Labor with a right to do a civil penalty up to five hundred dollars per per offense. So it's and it's a sliding scale based upon a number of employers and there are notice and posting violations as well of two hundred and fifty dollars. I'm not sure and I don't think there is a private right. I think the Department of Labor has to go in and actually do the civil penalties. So this is another one of those laws that's great in theory and practice to actually enforce it. There's not much you or I could do about it, but the government can if there are reports made to them. Yeah, and I think most likely what would happen is you'd have an across-the-board problem, so then the government would come in for all of the employees. But yes, I think that's going to be the next change is just making sure that there's some way for individual rights of action. Is there, and I'm springing this on you, are there retaliation claims for reporting this? I don't know if they are built within the statute, but my sense is common law retaliation would cover it, as would the Illinois Whistleblower Act, depending upon how that functions. Common law would cover it if I think an employee makes a complaint that the lack of a break or the lack of arrest violates the law, and then there is some retaliation. And I think under the IWA, it definitely would be protected if someone made a report to the Department of Labor. Well, it's interesting because for a retaliatory discharge, right, you need a an issue of public policy that we, what the cases always say, it can't be a purely private grievance that gives rise to the retaliation. It's got to be something that affects the public. But if as a matter of public policy, you argue that the state government has said, we want people to have a rest in every seven days. We want people to have meal breaks with at least a few minutes to eat. And you're not getting that and you complain about it and that results in a firing. I, I to me, that certainly feels like a public policy concern. It seems like a public policy concern. I don't think it's been litigated yet, so there probably isn't a definitive answer. I think people would probably look at other statutes that are similar to, like, for example, you could, you know, look at the, like, FILSA or the wage laws. Now, they have built-in retaliation prongs to them. But yeah, to me, it seems like there would be a public policy to ensure the workforce gets some rest. Although if you go back and you look at some of the old, and I know this because we had a bad decision from a judge we had to appeal, um, there is case law that predates, I think it's a 2011 amendment to the Wage Payment and Collection Act, where people did, I think it's the McGrath decision, there were cases where people did try to bring retaliatory discharge claims for IWPCA retaliation before that was codified by statute. And I think it was at least the appellate court, if not the state Supreme Court and certain federal district courts had all said, yeah, actually, no, there is no private cause of action for retaliation for these wage complaints. But that's pre-2011. After that, it's now it's now built into the law. So I, the only, I guess, caveat to that would be, I wonder if you, you get a decision like that saying, well, it's not provided for. Yeah, so I think the... The short answer to your question is the legislature probably needs to amend the act again to do two things. One is in, include some retaliation prong, and then two, also include, and I'll double check this, but I don't think it's in there, some civil right of action. So that way individuals can file these claims if an employer is violating the act. Well, the nice thing in it is, though, I'm, I'm seeing the penalties actually can be played to, paid to the employees. It's not just some de minimis fine that the employer pays that the employees don't see. There are actually workers' yeah. remedies here. So, Amit, what is the CROWN Act? The CROWN Act is an acronym for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. So the CROWN Act amends the Illinois Human Rights Act to expand the definition of race so that it covers traits associated with race, which would include hair, 
and texture and hairstyles that are more often associated with race. So that could be a form of discrimination. So the main thing that employers would have to do, and employees should do this too, just to make sure policies are compliant, is review the dress code policies and practices around hair and hairstyle. So an employer can still require employees to take reasonable measures related to workplace safety. So for example, if hair has to be tied because you work in a restaurant, et cetera, but at the same time, they can't have workplace policies that discriminate based upon hair, hair texture, unless there is a safety issue. And I think this is aimed at situations where people, I think it's typically in situations involving African-American workers, right? Where somebody yep. may have dreadlocks or traditional hair garb that maybe- Braids, yep, exactly. Less, uh, less, yeah. di less diverse workplaces, shall we say, are less tolerant of or are being sensitive to. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a smart amendment. It doesn't reinvent anything. It just broadens the definition of race as it should be broadened anyways. And I, I think, you know, if for anybody who does a lot of intent based work right in discrimination cases, there are already stereotyping claims that are provided for under like the PricewaterhouseCooper or I think it's just Pricewaterhouse Supreme Court decision, which starts as a gender case, but can expand. And I've certainly tried to apply it in racial stereotyping situations and cases where there are euphemisms or other sort of stereotypical thought processes that are employed as a proxy for race discrimination. <laughs> Yep, 100%. So I think this makes it a little bit just cleaner because it's already within the act as opposed to having to like determine an interpretation of it. So I think it's a better practice, but you're right. I think stereotyping, gender stereotyping, marital status, all of that has already kind of been built into the law, but this just makes it a little bit cleaner. Nice to, nice to have the statute to point to now and again. Yeah, exactly. Well, so tell us next, what's kind of going on in the world of pensions? Great question. Ever the expert that I am. I'm, I'm not, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Okay. So the Illinois Secure Choice Act became effective on November 1st of this year. And it's a, a an oddly numbered law in that there's with 16 or more employees are affected. So the Illinois Secure Choice Program was established by the Secure Choice Savings Program Act, and it applies to every employer with five or more employees who's been in the business for two years and requires them to either provide for a retirement plan or join the Illinois Secure Choice Program. That program's been around since 2018 based on an employee's headcount. The first wave to register with those was 500 or more employees, and that was in November of 2018. And smaller employers, so I guess anybody between 100 and 499 was beginning in July of 19 and et cetera. So over time it has um, rolled in for smaller and smaller employers. So basically employers enrolled in the state's retirement program, Secure Choice are required to hold 5% of each employee's compensation or up to the IRA limit, which is 6,000, remitting the withholdings of the state Secure Choice plan. Basically it requires employers to start helping employees plan for retirement. Those who fail to register for the program and don't offer their own programs, there are penalties. So like the One Day Rest in Seven Act, there are fines available. So you can get a penalty of 250 for employee for the first year of violations and 500 per employee for every year after that. So it can start to get expensive. Remind us again, when does all of that start so going into place? It's been going into effect for the last four years. Starting in November of this year was employers of five to, I believe it was over 16, was 16 to 24 employees. And then as of November 1st of next year, it will be five to 15 employees that will be in effect. Okay. So for our audience that I think are on the plaintiff side, but maybe smaller, this is something they're gonna have to look into. 
Yes, now small firms need to at least contemplate these retirement plans. So for those of you in the bar or, or elsewhere who listen who have five or more employees, congrats. You you now get some of these regulations that we're always very excited. Some of our some of the companies we sue now have to follow. Yeah. Uh, no no one's suing you, but you could be fined if you fail to comply. Yeah. Well, and at some point maybe what is the remedy? Is there any? Uh, no private cause of action that I'm aware okay. of, but it's the same as with the one day rest. And, I mean, not the same as the one day rest and seven act and that I don't think the employees receive any of the penalties leveled against an employer, but you can get whacked for a $500 an employee fine. If you're a repeat offender, I think it's 250 after the first violation. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll do a brief update then on the background checks amendment to the human rights act. This actually occurred last year but it's good just to do another quick reminder to folks on it. The focus, the amendments are more focused on using criminal convictions for employment-related decisions. And kind of the short version is if an employer wants to use and wants to make an employment decision based upon a conviction, the employer would have to show either that there is a substantial relationship between the conviction and the job. So for example, someone who's embezzled money may not be appropriate for an accounting position. But why though? Or yeah, that's but a fair why, question. But, but, but why though? <laughs> we may have to bring your partner on at some point to talk about accounting practices. <laughs> and the, the second prompt to it could be, or that the granting or continuation of that employment would involve an unreasonable risk to property or safety or welfare of specific individuals or the general public. Um, and then the employer is also supposed to use factors that the EEO has articulated in its guidance on the use of convictions, such as how old the conviction is, the nature and circumstances, the individual's history since the conviction occurred, and other mitigating circumstances. So I think the short version of this is really just employers have to be more cautious about relying on a conviction, at least in Illinois, if that's going to be a basis for not hiring an employee. So what... Because candidly, I'm I'm a little ignorant as to this topic. It was my understanding previously that conviction status, maybe it was arrest record, you could not previously use as a basis to screen. Yeah, so I think the way you're supposed to do it is do the job interview, potentially move forward, then you can kind of go forward with a background check. And now if the background check comes up with something, I think employers then have to go through this process of, well, if their conviction showed up, now what do we do with that? And I think in order to rely upon that conviction to not hire someone, they would have to meet one of these two prongs. Practically, just as I think about this, because I've gotten some calls on this topic, it seems like a challenging category of protection under the IHRA to enforce as an attorney. Um, maybe it's, I mean, candidly, I don't do a lot of failure to hire work because I have always found those cases to be extremely difficult to prove just because there's any thousand number of reasons somebody doesn't get a job. Some of which may be, I didn't look at your resume. I got a better applicant right off the, I got the person, you know, my partner always talks about a lot of these job posting sites. He learned at some point that a lot of the jobs that are on Indeed, for example, are really only up there. So a company can cover their bases and say that they put, they posted it and did it the right way, but often the position has already been filled. So, you know, somebody with an, a conviction applies for something, thinks their resume is great. It, I, I don't know on its own that that's gonna do much. I think that typically makes sense. Like, I, I think the one caveat that makes it harder here probably for employers is that you've already probably gone through the job interview process. Now you're going through the background check process. Like you've already likely provided the offer 
So at that point, I think you would have to probably, you, you would be in a tricky situation as an employer by saying it's because, I think you'd at that point kind of have to say it's because of the background check because it's so down the road in the process. Well, right. And I mean, so I think what you're contemplating, right, is somebody who's the background check is sort of the last box to check. You've yeah. you've cleared a couple rounds of interviews, maybe your your references have come back positively. You have a theoretical offer in hand pending the background check and drug test right. or what have you. Exactly. So I think the only way for the employer to be able to kind of use it, you know, the typical fact pattern for a failure to promote is hard because there are so many candidates and it's so hard. A lot of stuff may not even be documented here. That's probably not the case, depending on just the process that an employer would have to go through. So I think it does make it a little bit easier for the employee and harder for the employer relative to a failure to hire case. So I think it, it, the only place that really helps you, right, is where where you're at that stage. If it's a prerequisite where you have these mass applications and a background check is just a you know, an application component, that person's probably still going to struggle to bring that claim. Yeah, I think if it if the sequencing is done differently, then definitely. I think employers probably want to be careful, though, about doing the background check after the interview process because of what you brought up at the forefront, because you don't want to be screening based on that. Well, and, and we should bring him on to talk about this, but I have a colleague who does only FCRA, a Fair Credit Reporting mm-hmm. Act, and uh, Fair yeah. Debt Collection Practices Act. Encompassed within one of those laws is a federal law that affects how background checks can be used and that you can't, and I'm going to spitball a little here, I don't think you're allowed to secretly background check folks like that. That's the kind of thing where you need no, to know no. you're doing it up front. Yeah, no, you have to make sure you follow. It's kind of like BIPA in a way. Like there are some technical requirements you have to follow. And if you don't, that lends the door for my understanding is there can be class actions. And it's there is a good private right to action under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, like a lot of other forms of disparate treatment that are prohibited, these cases are still really hard to prove. Knowing and proving are different things, right? And you don't always yeah. know, even though you think you do. Um but it's still, in theory, a good concept. And for that subset of people who make it to that stage in a specific employment setting, you, you have something. You know, on the other hand, there are times, right, where the background check does make sense. If you're a senior care facility or a school, there are certain types of folks with backgrounds that you're not necessarily going to want working in your, you know, you don't want somebody with who's who's got a history of abuse or, or worse with children working in a school or somebody who's got a history of elder abuse working in a senior care facility. So you you can certainly understand why at times background checks will still be reasonable to engage in. For sure. Yep. And it goes even to the embezzlement example. I mean, if someone's an embe- if they've been convicted of embezzlement, it's harder to hire them as an accountant or a chief financial officer. So the guy who's about to really go down with the ship for FTC, that cryptocurrency, what you're saying is he yes, may struggle guy. to get a new, if he ever gets out of jail, if he ever gets convicted of anything, he's going to have a hard time getting a job in banking. It's the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes. I'm assuming her background <laughs> check may make it hard for her to get a new job. We got to do a whistleblower type episode on therapy. Yeah, we That'll should. That'll be a good one. We should. Well, I'll do the Illinois Child Bereavement Leave, which is no longer the name of the act, actually. It's now the Illinois Family Bereavement Leave Act. It's effective starting in January. It's modeled after FMLA or the Family Medical Leave Act. So companies that are covered under the federal FMLA are going to be covered under the new Leave Act. It provides two weeks or 10 working days of unpaid leave following the death of a family member. Um, It also now has an expanded definition because it covers the previous law used to only cover children. And so now it covers family members. It's also expanded to cover a whole host of other 
scenarios in which people may need time to grieve for funeral services, et cetera. There's a whole host, I think, that can be covered within that that doesn't necessarily need to be spelled out. So the law allows coverage for a miscarriage, unsuccessful IUI, unsuccessful round of any assisted reproductive technology procedures like IVF, a failed adoption match, contested adoption, a failed surrogacy, a stillbirth, anything or a diagnosis that negatively impacts a pregnancy or fertility. Typically what's going to be required in a DOL, the Department of Labor is going to create a model form for this, is a note from the doctor or a medical professional or from the adoption agency is going to be likely sufficient. Employees still have a right to medical privacy, so they don't have to provide the specific reason. And that's why the Department of Labor is making a, a specific form. So that one's really straightforward and it's not too complicated. And as a reminder, two other quick things. One is VESA. There are amendments to VESA, the Victims Economic Security and Safety Act, which became effective last year. And that protects employees who are victims or whose family members are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual violence, or gendered violence for taking unpaid leave. And the leave is, again, just going to be dependent upon the size of the employer. So for an employer with 14 or less folks, the individual is entitled to four weeks of leave. It goes to eight weeks of leave for 15 to 49 employees. And for more than 50 employees, it's 12 weeks of leave. And crime of violence is any form of sexual uh, offense, assault, harassment, obscene communication, armed violence, other crimes. So it's a broad definition. And it's also a broader group of people for which leave can be taken because it can be a close family member or a close association with the employee. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a family member. It can be someone you're very close to or have a family-like relationship. And then there is also new requirements under the amendments about what type of document has to be submitted for certification. So this is a nice law because you, the FMLA is, is great for all of this, but it's restrictive in that you got to really most employers are not all covered. Yeah. I, I a lot of time get calls from people who if they were an employer of 50 or more and they'd been there for a year, they'd be covered. But because they're new or they fall just short or it's a smaller company, they're just sort of out of luck. Yeah. And the Family Leave Act, I think, is going to cover stuff the Family Medical Leave Act wouldn't. And so that's nice. It kind of fills in the gap within the law of you know, you may be struggling because a close family member passed or you thought you were going to adopt a kid and that fell through and now you need some time for yourself. And so I'm not sure FMLA would cover that. So that's great. And VESA, the amendments expanded. So it's even applying now to companies that definitely wouldn't apply, wouldn't be applicable for FMLA. So I think that's really important. It is. And I think it's a nice reminder that federal law should be seen as a minimum, not a maximum level of help that it can provide. You know, there are a lot of areas where state government has stepped in to make things better. The federal minimum wage hasn't changed in way too long. Yeah, It's still $7.25 an hour, which is bonkers. And so it's nice that you have, you know, added leave protections, broader definitions of what's a protected class for discrimination purposes, leave, you know? Yeah, no, I agree with that. All right, so tell us what's happening with the IEPA. So the IEPA had June 2021 amendments that imposed new reporting obligations on employers within 100 or more employees in Illinois who also file an annual employer information report or an EEO-1 report with the EEOC. Those employers are now required to apply for an equal pay registration certificate from the Illinois Department of Labor, submit employee demographic and data and wage records to the IDOL, 
submit a compliance statement certifying that the employer's business complies with state and federal equal pay and anti-discrimination laws and submit their most recent EEO-1 report to the IDOL. They've already begun assigning deadlines that occur between March of 22 and March of 24 for covered employers to get their certificates applications in. Um, employers get notifications of the registration deadline no less than 120 days before, and they're on a rolling basis. So, you know, keep in mind, equal pay, equal pay obligations are a little bit different than a straight disparate treatment claim, right? So those claims are a little easier for employers to get whacked for. I like equal pay claims personally, just because you're you're not in the because of the protected class reason for the disparate pay. You just typically in a gender case, but the Illinois Equal Pay Act specifically also protects African-Americans. It's essentially there can't if they have no good reason for the pay gap, they're going to have an issue. Yeah. And the one other thing about the Equal Pay Act, and I'm not entirely I don't have an answer to as to why it's happening. But over the last couple of years, we have seen a bunch of amendments to the Equal Pay Act. And so there is more focus there, because like you said, there was also an amendment to expand it to include race. Well, not well. all races, not, not all, all races. race. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I mean, I think we all see the reports, right, that women yeah. make. And I'm going to I'm going to kick myself for getting this number wrong. But last I remember, it was like 70 cents on the dollar for every man. And I would be willing to put good money that that's actually probably now worse in light of the pandemic. Yeah. And the gender inequities that were worsened by it. I think that data is old, I think. I remember correctly just reading like headlines in December of 2020 about how the pandemic has specifically hurt jobs for women relative to men. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I think the I think the pandemic, I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. The pandemic definitely made that worse just because if women are on balance earning less than men and families with childcare obligations were put in situations where the breadwinner had to, you know, the main breadwinner had to keep the job. You can kind of see how the math works out and it, it just makes all of this worse. Certainly not a good development, but the Equal Pay Act and IEPA are in protections to that. You know, I'll share candidly, every equal pay case I've ever had has started with an employer faxing or emailing the wrong offer letter to my client and sort of just inadvertently revealing what they've done wrong. It, it it's almost it's almost never organic like that, right? Somebody screws up and yeah. kind of wake up and you're like, wait a minute, why is this guy out earning me by whatever? No, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And um, then just as to the law itself, the consequences of non-compliance on it can lead to audits and penalties. And I think we all know most employers don't like state or federal government agencies combing around their their records. So non-compliance will lead to more of that. Also, we want to cover today. The last thing I wanted to just touch base on, which we've done before, is just a reminder about the amendments to the Freedom to Work Act. They're about a year in. I'm not going to spend too much time belaboring this, but again, now there are salary thresholds or compensation thresholds on non-competes and non-solicits. So we have kind of a two-prong approach there. Some case law has been codified, including kind of the two-year rule for consideration for employees, but then also the reliable fire Supreme Court decision, which is like the test for how to interpret non-compete agreements, along with blue penciling and reformation. And now there's an attorney's fees provision. The one thing that I think is going to be more important to note is by the end of this calendar year, we'll have now, and what I mean by that is by the end of 2023, it'll have been two years since the law has been effective. And so now there won't be any issues regarding the two-year rule in consideration because there is some limbo as to agreements that may have been signed prior to last year. 
because technically the new law would not apply to those agreements. All right, Amit, before we wrap up, any changes? We talked a little bit about the minimum wage a few minutes ago. Is that going up again next year? It is going up again. So the minimum wage wage is going up both in the city of Chicago, Cook County, and for the state. For the city of Chicago, that actually went up in July to 1540 for non-tip workers and companies that employ 21 or more folks and 1450 for other businesses. The tip rate increased to $9.40 as well. Starting in July, certain businesses in the city of Chicago healthcare, hotel, restaurants, retail, or warehouse workers are also required to post work schedules within 14 days of notice. That increased from 10 days. For Cook County, the minimum wage increased in July to $13.35 for non-tip workers and $7.40 for tip workers. And then for the state of Illinois, the minimum wage is going to go up for non-tip workers to $13 an hour, and it'll be $7.80 for tip workers. And as you mentioned earlier, the federal wage is not going up. That continues to remain the same. All good stuff. Amit, what's your shout out of the week? Oh, you put me on the spot first here. Yeah, Um, I did. How does it feel? (laughs) Oh, Max is so happy about this. Okay, I'm my dog's just... barking in the background. We get to ch- for the dr- for those playing the 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 employee drinking, alert, drinking game in the background. I sprung one on Amit, and my dog's barking. And I have sirens in the background, which usually happens at least once an episode. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit, and I'm just going to do a shout out to kind of like the holiday season. I feel um, I know Max is already upset at me because it's cheating. You know, I I think as a kid it's super fun, and I think as an adult it gets tough because you have family stuff, you have things here and there kind of starting in mid-November through the end of the year, plus you're trying to like wrap up work. And I think this year it's been kind of nice because COVID hasn't been as heavy-handed as it was the last two years. And so at least for me personally, it's been kind of nice to be able to just like do holiday stuff again and not worry about all the other things that are going on in the world. And so I've kind of missed it. I've kind of enjoyed this holiday season, even though there's stuff kind of going on a lot. So that's going to be my shout out. So cheat, I'm cheating a little bit, but it's just kind of nice to be able to get back into the swing of things, see people are just like happy, enjoying themselves, taking time off, those sort of things. All right. What about you, Max? I'm a curmudgeon, so I will not do the holiday season. <laughs> I will shout out my wife, my daughter, my dog. They put up with me and they bring me endless joy. So I'll shout them out. That's an easy one. All right. My dog is barking outside the door, demanding that I let him in. Thank you at home to everybody for listening. Let us know if you have some episodes you'd like to hear, any topics that would be interesting. It's always nice to know that people are listening and uh, and reaching out. So we're always happy to do that. If you have something you'd like to come on to talk about in the employment law or employment law adjacent world, we are always down to have those conversations. It stops us from having to do real work. Ahmed, anything else on your end, man? No, that's that. Just stay healthy, everyone. And if you have any other episode ideas, guest ideas, definitely reach out. Otherwise, please subscribe and share. Thanks again. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.